Welcome, everyone, to the latest edition of the Surmapod. This is the podcast for the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I am the founder and CEO of Surma, also the host of the Surmapod, Rich Lankov. Uh, we're very privileged to have uh, Landis Barber today. Landis is a associate with Saffron Law out of Raleigh. He's also a blogger for the excellent site, offthecourtdocket.com, which covers all things sports and law-related. Landis, welcome to the Surmapod. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I know you wrote about the uh, G trial for uh, your uh, website, and uh, it's a really interesting case. This is a case involving um, Matthew G, who was uh, a linebacker for USC, I think from 88 to 92. And he sued the NCAA, alleging that they failed to uh, put into place safety measures to prevent him from getting hurt. Specifically, his widow, he died, his widow alleged that uh, he developed CTE from playing at USC. And she sued the NCAA, of course, the governing body over college sports, for damages resulting from his death. She claimed that uh, USC failed to uh, put in place proper safety measures to avoid concussions and avoid CTE. And as a result... Again, she uh, sued uh, the NCAA, and last week, in a verdict that was watched by many of us in this industry, and also many uh, of whom who have filed similar lawsuits across the country, a jury returned a verdict on behalf of the defendant, on behalf of the NCAA. That's kind of the backdrop. Uh, Linus, tell us what else uh, brought the plaintiff to court in this case? What were the other allegations involved? Yeah, so Maggie was a linebacker, like you said, for USA between 88 and 92, and his wife brought this wrongful death action against the NCAA. Matt died in 2018 on New Year's Eve. Uh, and when the uh, when his death was reviewed, it was a, a number of factors. You know, there was cardiovascular issues, there was liver disease um, and alcohol, and all of these were contributing factors. Uh, later, Alana sent Matt's brain off to Boston University to detect CT, and there it was found that he actually had CT. So it was post, post-death that he, it was found that he had CT, and that's when she brought the lawsuit against the NCAA, alleging that they you know, failed to protect Matt um, they knew about this and they failed to input precautions. And this case is really, really important because this was the first CTE case to breach a jury. It's not the first one to go to trial. Plots went to trial um, early. Plots went to trial in 2014, 2016, somewhere around that time frame. Um, and that settled quickly, uh, quickly after trial began. But this is the first one to, to reach a jury. And that's exactly why people were following this case. Uh, they wanted to see what would happen, whether it would settle, and uh, it turns out that the jury actually ruled in favor of the NCAA here. So let's break that down for our listeners because that's an interesting point. Uh, let's let's make sure we understand the difference between going to trial and going to a verdict, right? A lot of the cases, like you said, settled before they even got to a trial. A lot of them did go to trial, meaning a jury was selected and trial began. But by the time that trial started, most of those cases um, settled. Uh, 
Uh, and the reason, let's talk about some of the reasons, Landis, why a lot of these cases, why this is really the first case that actually went to a jury. Uh, what are the, some of the challenges that any plaintiff in alleging that CTE was the result of playing football or any other sport? What are some of the challenges inherent to that legal theory? Well, the the problem is really proving that the NCAA knew about it and was responsible for it. First, you had to prove they died because of CTE, right? That was one of the big issues in this case. You had to prove they died because of CTE. Now, the NCAA's attorneys argued that he died from cirrhosis and some liver complications. He had a history of alcohol, um, alcohol issues and different things like that. So that's what the NCAA was arguing, that cirrhosis and some of these other liver diseases have the same symptoms as CTE. So, and that's what he died from. Now, on the flip side of that, um, they did, Guy's attorneys did present expert testimony discussing that he did decide, he did die from CTE and they believed he died from CTE. So that's how they were sort of counteracting that. And so then really, you have to prove. Yeah. No, that's a really important point that I don't want it to be missed uh, because that's why a lot of the cases don't see a verdict is because of the difficulties in proving causation, right? Causation is an exactly. important legal standard that a plaintiff has a duty to prove. And that's a, a real obstacle in these cases because, listen, uh, Matthew Gee played football probably his entire life up until the time of his death, unfortunately, or, you know, up until at least the time he stopped playing football. Um, right. It's very difficult, even for medical experts, to pinpoint that your brain injury, your concussion, your CTE was developed during the relatively short time that you played for a defendant, in this case, USC and the NCAA versus the many years that you played for non-defendants like your little league team, like your pop Warner team, like your high school team. Right. So that's an inherent difficulty in proving these cases. And that's why um, a lot of these cases were the subject of a settlement right on the pro level. We know that the NFL settled with many litigants who alleged that playing professional football caused their CT. The reason that those most of those cases settled is because one reason is because of this difficulty in proving causation on the pro level. Similarly, there right. was a settlement at the collegiate level that Matchy didn't uh, join. Right. That's correct. And, and to that point, you know, and we're talking specifically about this case and causation. The NCAA had something to lean on that was pretty big and pretty important. Was that he never discussed having a concussion while at USC. Um, and even when he went on to the practice squad for the Los Angeles Raiders at the time, I believe they were, and he had to fill out a form. And on that form, he checked the box that he had never had a concussion or anything like that. So the NCAA had that evidence to lean on during this trial. Very important. Um, in fact, the defense lawyer said, we don't have a time machine. The NCAA doesn't have a time machine to go back and you know, get notice of this alleged injury when it occurred. Um, they said that uh, he never reported, like you said, in his application to play with the Raiders. Now, anyone who uh, applies to play professional football, they have to be clear to play, right, by a doctor. Do. A doctor is not just going to let you strap on the Raiders uniform without you clearing medical. Part of that process is that you have to be honest with the doctor and forthright and tell the doctor about your prior medical history, right? The Raiders doctor is right. not clairvoyant. They don't have the ability to look into your past. So part of the defense, apparently a winning strategy in this case, was you never told anyone until well after the fact. In fact, 
Not only did he not tell anyone, you affirmatively asserted that there was nothing wrong with you. Otherwise, you would have never made it onto the Raiders roster. How much of a factor do you think that was in the juror's mind? Well, I think that's sort of, that's a really big factor. Um, I mean, the Guy's attorney did present teammates, and they presented stories of Guy would come back to the huddle, and you know he clearly was not all the way there. He couldn't remember play calls and different things like that. But the fact that he said, I've never had a concussion, really must have gone a long way. And keep in mind, CTE was not discovered – from football players until 2005 when Boston University conducted a study. Now, Guy played at USC between 88 and 92. 2005 is obviously well after that. So how was, I think the NCAA's point is, how are we supposed to know about this if you're not admitting that you ever had a concussion during that time period? Keep in mind, this is all posthumously, obviously. Um, And we never even knew that this was a thing until 2005. The answer that the plaintiffs gave to that answer to that um, defense was that the NCAA knew about, you know, brain injuries going back to the 30s. Um, they presented some evidence of that, and that the NCAA did nothing to um, remedy that. But you know, obviously, the jury was persuaded by what you said that CTE wasn't even discovered until you know, uh, well after he stopped playing. So. Again, that underlines the very difficult job a plaintiff has in providing that crucial causation element, which is the, the nexus here. What about the damages? What, what are your thoughts on the allegation of damages? How, how do those break down? Um, because she was asking for $55 million, right? Um, do you think that that amount of damages might have been a factor in how the jury decided this case? I don't think it was as much of a factor in how the jury decided this case. I mean, it, it just seems like they leaned on other issues of uh, the lack of the lack of reporting concussions and that issue with CT and wasn't discovered in football players until 2005 when a Boston University medical study um, revealed it and a doctor from Boston University revealed it. The other issue, I think the geese had some real issues overcoming some lacks of evidence from the other side in that you you just discussed they tried to present evidence that the NCAA knew about this but keep in mind there was the the Giza attorneys are alleging that there were some journals missing between 1933 and 1966 that did reveal that the NCAA knew about these issues so the Giza couldn't put those into evidence Uh, so I think it was really sort of that lack of being able to prove that the NCAA knew about these issues and overcoming that he died from CTE. That was really the issues. Damages could have been a part of it, um, but ultimately I don't think that was as much as the other issues within the Geese case. When is another piece of evidence that the plaintiffs tried to get in that was kept from the jury ultimately was information about other linebackers, teammates of Gee, who played on the defense at USC during the same time period. One famously was Junior Seau who we all know from the Chargers, a Hall of Famer, who ultimately died, and that death was linked to CTE. Um, Obviously, a very crucial ruling by the trial judge to not allow that other information in. Uh, That would have, I think, been very persuasive in establishing that this wasn't simply because of the factors that the defense posited. In other words, his own, you know, uh, medical history and his 
alcohol abuse, drug abuse, whatever. But this was a pattern as evidenced by other people who played with him that, that also died from this. Uh, why do you think that ruling was made legally and how crucial was that you think not being involved in the trial, we understand, but uh, not being in the jury room, but how persuasive would that have been had the jury seen it? That would have been huge, I think. One of five linebackers. We're not talking about offensive linemen. Uh, we're not talking about defensive line. We're not talking about one of uh, five defensive players. We're not talking about one of five offensive players. We're not talking about one of five team members. We're talking about one of five linebackers died before the age of 50. Uh, or all five of them died before the age of 50, and he was one of them. Obviously, the other was one of the more famous ones was Junior Seau as well, who uh, also was diagnosed with CTE posthumously. And I think that was a huge factor, I think. But I think the judge probably looked at it and said this could be more prejudicial than probative. Um, it's not relevant to Guy's death. Um, but ultimately, I do think it was a huge factor, and it would have been a huge factor if it could have been gone to the jury and it could have been something the jury included. So Linus, you talked about, um, and in your piece, you talk about other lawsuits and the effect of the Guy verdict uh, on these other lawsuits. Where do you think we stand now? I mean, this is a huge verdict. First one that went to trial, went to a verdict that came back in favor of the defense. So what impact do you think that will have to the hundreds, thousands of other similar lawsuits that are currently making their way through the dockets uh, in this country. It gives the NCAA something to lean on. And the NCAA has made it clear that they're going to continue to fight these cases. Um, they said it in their post statement that they would continue to fight these cases throughout the country. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily over, um, especially for some of these more recent cases and different things like that. Some of these cases that may not have other elements involved, such as cirrhosis and alcohol issues and different things like that. Um, they, it, it could present more problems for the NCAA, but still there's that causation problem, right? There's, and this, I'd, it's unclear whether people will be able to overcome that. And now the NCAA has something to lean on, a verdict to lean on, uh, and that they can cite in other cases throughout the country. A hundred percent. Um, I guess my last question, Landis, is um, when it comes to these type of allegations and lawsuits, you know, we talk a lot about in our organization and on this podcast about reputational risk, right? And the very fact sure. that this case went to trial has an impact on the NCAA. Let's face it, the NCAA has had its share of uh, issues recently, right? Um, that's That's been a, a fact for the last 20 or 25 years. And... Another reason why these cases don't often go to a verdict, and in fact, has never gone before this case, and generally don't go to trial, is because there's a risk there. Not just a risk of monetary damages, but there's a reputational risk. And anytime the NCAA is covered in the same sentence by thousands of news organizations as CTE, brain trauma, concussion, that's never a good look, right? So conversely, you know, as someone who defends a lot of organizations uh, against lawsuits like this, uh, a win in this kind of case also has an effect on your reputational risk. And to your earlier point, it has a bit of a chilling effect on others who might bring a lawsuit that you think is meritless. So maybe you could give us some sense of, you know, the two sides of that coin. There is a risk anytime a case goes to trial, the high profile defendant involving things like brain trauma, that's highly 
a sense of area, right? Every parent yes. who sends their kid off to play sports is cognizant of risks. And as a, as a governing body, you don't want to see your name associated with that, even if you win. So there's a risk to your reputation, even in a victory like this. Yeah, this was absolutely, this was a risk for both sides to go to a verdict. I mean, think about what would have happened had the jury returned a different verdict, had the jury returned in favor of the geese. And to your point about damages, maybe that did kind of spook some people in the jury to say, wow, if we open this floodgates, then there's going to be thousands of people across the country that now are seeking lawsuits and seeking damages in similar amounts to the geese. Uh, and there was a risk in that and going to it. And this can only, even in a, you're right, even in a win for the NCAA, this doesn't look great, especially when you come out and say, we'll fight these, fight these issues. Um, but it, the NCAA is going to, this won't be the last case. So the NCAA is going to have to continue to input changes into college football and other areas, especially if I was listening on the radio today, you know, we're expanding a college football playoff right now. We're adding more games, right, to to a team season. And the NCAA is doing that. Division One is doing that. Um, and that's obviously more opportunities for head trauma and issues like that. So they're going to have to continue to safeguard against these risks and uh, what could happen in CTE and other issues. But it was it was a risk for the NCAA to go to a jury and not settle this. Um, but it won't be the last time that a case reaches the jury. Linus, what's next on uh, offthecourtdockets.com? What are you covering next? <laughs> I have no clue right now. I'll have to find something to cover next. Uh, it's mainly just a place I like to, when I see issues, I like to write about them, read about them, write about them, and 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 hopefully offer some thoughts and opinions on them that people can use. So. Hey, that's the uh, the interesting part of what we're doing, right? I mean, there's there's new stories every day, uh, seemingly in sports, um, uh, legal issues, risk issues. Uh, you never know what's next. You got to be on your toes. So I appreciate you coming on, Landis, and uh, we'll see you next time on the Sermapod. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Ideas, strategies, and opinions represented on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.